Amen. You can get your Bibles out if you brought one and open to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to take a few moments and look at this Christmas paradox again this week. Uh, when you look at the Christmas story, I mean really look at the Christmas story, what you realize is that it is filled with paradoxes. Literally filled. And remember last week we said a paradox is an apparent contradiction that conceals a profound truth. One of the things about the Christmas story is that it can become so familiar to us that we sort of grow apathetic or maybe that we uh, miss the nuances that are in the story itself or we take for granted things that uh, maybe aren't to be taken for granted or maybe aren't even there at all as we'll see today. So let's pray together and then we're going to take a few moments and look at this text from Matthew chapter 2. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day that you've given us, the beautiful children, Lord, that you've entrusted to us. Thank you for all of the truth that you are just embedding into their little hearts. God, thank you for Ms. Siobhan and all the leaders who spend so much time working with them, preparing them. God, thank you for each one that's come out today to be in your house and to worship you. And for those who are guests today or are here to see maybe their grandchildren or their niece or nephew. Or God, we just thank you for each one here. And Lord, in this time that we have together, we pray that you'd be glorified. And we know that in order for that to happen, we need you to give us ears to hear so we might be able to receive your word and what you have to say to us today that we would glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to talk a little bit about um, Aiden's part. I don't know what Aiden's character's name was, but Aiden, uh, he, his part of the cake experiment, which, by the way, these are all cakes. That's what's in these bags for each family to take home. There's a happy birthday Jesus kit in there so you can go home and have your own cake experiment. Amen? We're so politically correct. We even have red ones up here that are gluten-free. And I do not know what gluten is, so do not ask me. I'm still confused about that. But there's whatever it is that's not in those. Okay? All right. Well, I want you to be able to pay attention. I don't want you sitting there focused on, wonder what's in those bags. So, uh, Aiden's part of the cake experiment was the wise men. And uh, I hate to break this to you. You know, some of you, you know, you have nativity scenes out in your yard, and that's wonderful and good. And I don't want to mess it all up for you, but uh, the wise men weren't there. Okay? So, they weren't there. The wise men, we learn about the wise men in Matthew's uh, birth account, Matthew chapter 2, um, which is, takes place at a different time than Luke chapter 2. You can't mix those two things together. Um, clearly, in Matthew, if you just pay attention to what's going on, you realize that, uh, well, Jesus is, is not a baby in the manger, but it's sometime after that. So he's already uh, grown a little bit. It may be 
It may be a few months. It may be up to a year. Understand something. Remember that Herod said uh, that he was going to have all the boys under two years old executed. Now, he, if Jesus would have been a newborn baby, there wouldn't have been any point in going to two years old. And so, clearly, when the wise men show up, they go to the house where Jesus was. But anyway, point being, what I want to ask you is, well, what is the purpose of the wise men, first of all? I mean, I asked my kids yesterday, I said, well, what's the purpose of the wise men? And they said, uh, Cameron said, well, to bring Jesus gifts. And I said, but he was little. He was a baby. He didn't need gifts. Why? Why? What was that all about? And he just looked at me like, I don't know. You're the pastor. You tell me. Okay. So I did. So if you have your listening guide, here's what I want you to see, first of all, that we'll build around this. God's great goal is the joyful worship of Jesus among all the peoples of the world. God has a great overarching goal, and that is for all the peoples of the world to joyfully worship Jesus. Now, it's no matter how far away you may feel from Him, no matter how distant or excluded you may feel, His goal is for the joyful worship of His Son Jesus by all people around the world. Now, I want to show you how that unfolds in this passage, and then I'll talk for a few minutes about the paradox. Look at Matthew chapter 2. All the verses will come up on the screen today. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews, they ask? For we have seen this star in the east and have come to worship him. So these wise men or magi show up. Now these are, uh, these are a group of men. Again, uh, how many of them are there? The Bible doesn't tell us. See, you're all scared now. You're like, I ain't answering nothing. There's not three wise men, there's three gifts, okay? We don't know how many wise men there were, but here's what we do know. There wasn't just three because they traveled about 900 miles to get there. Three men by themselves carrying the gifts that they had, that didn't work. They would have traveled with an entourage, so there would have been a group of people Furthermore, the Bible tells us that when they got to Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem recognized that they had arrived. So there was a big group of them, and they had traveled a long distance to get there. They had traveled from Persia or Babylon, say modern-day Iraq or Turkey, to get to Jerusalem following this star. And so here they are showing up, and then they want to know where the king of the Jews is. Now, it's strange because, first of all, you don't typically have people going around seeking to pay tribute to a future leader. In other words, when you were watching these children lead us in worship, you know, somewhere in the United States, possibly even here on this stage, there are future presidents of this country already little kids right now in our country. And nobody's seeking to honor 
children who will one day be in a position because, well, that's just weird. I mean, you don't show up and ask the king where the king is. That's weird. They go to King Herod, who is the king, the supreme earthly power, and they say, where's the king? And the Bible says he's deeply troubled. Well, what that means in the Hebrew is he is deeply offended because he is the king, and they walk up to the king and say, well, where is the king? And he's thinking, you're looking at the king. I'm the king. So the whole thing is sort of strange. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they began to uncover what was going on. Herod began to figure out, wait a minute, now this is the Christ we're looking for, that they're looking for. And so we've got to, you know, he wants to get to the bottom of what's going on. Now skip down to verse 9. So when they heard the king, so the king goes through all that he goes through, they departed, and behold, a star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Exceedingly great joy. Now here's the big paradox about this whole situation with the wise men. The wise men are outcasts. They're foreigners. They're Gentiles. They're non-Jews. They're outside. They're worshiping with exceedingly great joy. Meanwhile, the Jewish people who have been waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come... All of the prophecies about the coming Messiah are all their prophecies. They're disinterested. The foreigners have traveled halfway around the world to worship the God of a people who don't seem to care. That's very, very strange. And you see the great lengths that God goes to from the very beginning for us to understand how determined He is that when He sends His Son, His Son comes for all people, including those that feel furthest away from Him. So when we get to verse 11 which is where we'll spend all of our time today. Look at the beginning part of verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Isn't that astonishing? Here we see magi. Astronomers, astrologers from a foreign country, a foreign people who have traveled and overcome so much to get to this place and this time. God used a star to guide them on their journey to come so that they would be among the first to worship the newborn king. Now there should 
clearly be some things about this that would help us be practical about maybe how we navigate Christmas, how we manage Christmas, especially how we give gifts because the central point of these wise men in their journey is to give these gifts to Jesus. So what I want you to see, first of all, number one is we need to give with the right priority. We need to give gifts with the right priority. And this is what we see happening right here with these wise men. See, before they give the gifts that they brought, what do they do? They worship. And there's a, there's a message in that for us because what we need to do is we need to realize that <clears throat> it's not just about the gifts. We need to have a moment of worship before we give the gifts. We need to begin our Christmas celebration with worship. See, some of you, what you'll do is you will uh, gather around as a family on Christmas morning and someone will read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, and that'll be wonderful, and that's typically uh, what we'll do at my house. We'll do that on Christmas Eve. And then on Christmas morning, when it's shred the paper, open the presents time, well, before we get to the presents, we'll read a passage of Scripture that'll sort of set our minds and our hearts on what we're going to do. Maybe this could be a good tradition for you to begin in your family, let me give you a great verse to read. James chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See, that's a great thing to think about and to set your mind on before you start opening the presents. Think about how God doesn't change and how God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And how easy it is for us to be deceived and to forget that really the best gifts, every good and perfect gift comes from above. It's very easy to be deceived. Just look around you and you, it doesn't take you long to realize that Christmas has been hijacked. I mean, for a lot of years, we've been discouraged from even wishing people a Merry Christmas because people would take offense to it. I think uh, Merry Christmas is on, the, uh, is on the rebound, though, now. You've been hearing it a lot lately? I guarantee you I have. It's been good. I like it. So for a while there, we were the only ones wishing people a Merry Christmas. But it's easy to see how Christmas has been hijacked. And so we don't need to be deceived. For example, think about this. This year, millions and millions of people will decorate their houses with Jesus without dedicating their house to Jesus. You know, we love to drive around with our kids and look at Christmas lights. Maybe you like to do that. And quite honestly, uh, I feel very fortunate that the greatest uh, Christmas light display, in my opinion, uh, just family that decides to do this on their own happens to be right down the street from me. And so every time I drive by, I just think, my goodness, look at how beautiful that is. 
And we were even having a conversation. Me and my kids are going to write a letter we, to this family and just say thank you for all the time and energy and money you spend in decorating your house so extravagantly because it's such an enjoyment and a blessing to us. And we want to be grateful to them for what they do. But when we're out and about looking at Christmas lights, here's what I always think. I think, wow, look how beautiful that is and how wonderful that is. And then I think, but I wonder if they know Jesus. See, you got a lot of people that are big time into celebrating Christmas. They don't even know Jesus. They just love Christmas. Maybe they just love the nostalgia of it or they love the, you know, they just love the... The, to celebrate it, but they don't really celebrate it around Jesus. You see, the thing about it is, is that we live in a time where it's easy, if you want to, to celebrate Christmas and leave Jesus completely out of it. And quite frankly, as time goes on, the more and more... Uh, Christmas things that, that evolve and all the, the Christmas movies now and so on and so forth. It's, it, they are, it's really just about everything but Jesus. And here's the thing. You know, anything that endures for a shorter time than your soul can never satisfy your soul. Anything that endures for a shorter time than your soul, it can't satisfy your soul. In other words, all of these temporary short-term things will never bring lasting satisfaction. I mean, my goodness, as I think about it, there's, there's gifts that are wrapped that are under my tree right now for my kids, and they won't last till noon on Christmas Day. They'll be obliterated by then. I mean, it's, it's very temporal. And most of the gifts, if not all the gifts that are under my tree, probably won't be remembered by February. I mean, if you really stop and think about, think about what, you know, what did you get for Christmas last year? Do you remember? Don't be deceived. The good and perfect gifts come from God. They last. They're true gifts. They'll satisfy till all eternity. It's the one gift, Jesus, that never changes. It, it doesn't fade away. It doesn't grow dim. It won't corrode. See, perfection doesn't need to change. It doesn't need to be altered because Jesus is the perfect gift given by the perfect God. He is the perfect gift. And so we really have to think about the priority as we're giving before we start, you know, getting all wrapped up in giving gifts, which is a good thing if we do it the right way. We need to make sure that we have the right priority. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus and Christmas. There's never going to be an upgrade. There's never going to be a newer, better model. There's never going to be. It's going to be. So when you, when you, when you 
start Christmas with the right focus and the right priority, it can't get any better than that. It just can't. Secondly, when we give, we want to give what we can afford. Now, believe it or not, that's not only true, but it's also in this text. I'm not just saying that because I'm concerned about some of your debt level, which, by the way, it's not on accident that right after the holidays when we move into January, we have Financial Peace University starting because you need that. Amen. It's good. We all want to be good stewards of what God gives us, so we want to give what we can afford. Now look at, back at verse 11. So when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And, they, and when they had opened their treasures. Now you may have never looked at this before and thought about this before, but they gave of their treasures. They didn't give of Bank America's treasures. You know that? Which, by the way, aren't your treasures. They belong to somebody else until you paid it off. See, they gave of their own treasures. Now, granted, these were incredibly expensive gifts, as we're going to see in a few moments, that they brought to Jesus. But these were also very wealthy people. So it matched their resources. But when they come, I want you to notice, look at what they do. They give of their own treasures. Now, I don't know if you go into debt for Christmas. Some of you may already be in debt this Christmas. But I want you to realize there's some things that you can pull out of this text that are right here in front of us. I mean, they give what they can afford, number one. But there's another, there's another little subtle truth that's important, I think. They didn't give everyone a gift, did they? Did they give Mary a gift? Joseph a gift? See, some of you, you feel like you got to give everybody a gift. So if you go to somebody's house, you don't go to their house without a gift. You make sure you give every... I mean, and here's the thing, that's a problem. Because if you can't afford to do that, you shouldn't be doing it. Amen. You shouldn't be doing it. There's a lot of cultural pressure sometimes to make sure that you give everyone a gift or make sure that you give the right gift. Listen, they didn't give everyone a gift. They gave what they could afford, and they, and they gave strategically and specifically. You don't have to give everyone a gift. There wasn't a housewarming gift for Mary and Joseph. There was a gift for Jesus. You know, think about something. Where were they before they arrived at the house with Jesus? They were before Herod. And you know what I thought about? I thought about how interesting it is that they didn't give King Herod a gift. And it's very customary that you would give a king a gift, but they didn't give Herod a gift. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. They brought gifts for Jesus. I think that's good for us to notice and to think about. So on this sort of vein of thinking, let's just say some things that are true. First of all, the best gifts are not always expensive. They're not. I want to encourage you today that 
There are times when not only something being expensive is unnecessary, but there are times when really what you really should do is rethink this whole gift-giving thing, especially to people that you are extremely close to and love very deeply. What do I mean? Well, I mean that instead of spending money, why don't you show somebody how much you love them? Why don't you tell somebody how much you love them? See, part of the holiday season is uh, connected to, there's nothing we can do about it. It's connected to people who aren't here. Because it's a lot about family and it's a lot about togetherness. And so it's the obvious time where we're forced to consider and to realize that there are people that we have loved and have celebrated past Christmases with that aren't here with us. But it also makes us realize that, you know what? Those people aren't here. And maybe there's some things that we wish we could say to them that we can't, but we can say to some people who are here, so we should say them. should sit down and write a letter to someone that you love very deeply and you should tell them how much you love them and how much they mean to you. And so that one day when they're not here with you, you'll have peace in your heart that you said to them everything that needed to be said, right? You see, every year around Christmas time, I miss my father-in-law. I talked about him last week. I can't really talk about Christmas without talking about him. Because it just makes me think about him. It makes me think about what a huge part of my life he was. It makes me realize that, you know, he's not here. But I wish that before he passed away, I had written him a letter. I had sat down and had a conversation with him. And I told him how much... I appreciate the fact that he, he showed me what it was to be a good and faithful husband. That he illustrated for me how to be a good father. That he was a great example to me of how to follow Jesus. And I really, really appreciate that. Is there somebody in your life? But you know what? I promise you, if you sit down and you write a letter and you tell them from your heart how much they mean to you, it will mean more to them than the most expensive gift you've ever gotten. So why don't you do that? Be a good thing to do this Christmas. One more thing is, uh, when it comes to giving gifts to someone you love, always begin with the why before the what. You see, the problem today is that when people go to buy a gift for somebody, all they think about is the what. 
well, what am I going to get them? That's the wrong, that, that's your, you're starting on the wrong foot. The first thing you want to think about is why. Why am I giving them a gift which will make you think about all that they are to you and, and, and what they mean to you and so on and so forth. And that will direct you towards the what. You see, for example, I mean, I, I thought about how, I mean, I'm just trying to think about you. Trying to think about all the situations and scenarios that could exist. So maybe there's somebody in your life that you love to spend time with and they mean a lot to you, but you don't get to spend a lot of time with them. And so you're going to buy them a gift. And so why don't you think about the why before the what and then come up with a a creative way of giving them a gift and at the same time showing them how much they mean to you. For example, you can you could buy them uh, a bag of really expensive, nice, wonderful coffee. Yuck. But I know you love it. And then you give them this coffee with two coffee mugs. And you put a note in there and you say that this coffee is for us to share together. And every time that you come in town or every time we get to spend time together, me and you are going to sit down and we're going to drink some of this coffee together and we're going to get to catch up with one another. And that's, the, that's what this coffee and these two cups are for. And so it's a reminder that, hey, I love you and I want to spend time with you. I want to catch up with you and I want to, you know, give your children something that communicates to them. More than just the fact that you, you know, want them to have fun. Sure, you want them to have fun, but you also want them to know specifically how much you love them and why you love them. See, Christmas is first about the why, then the what. I mean, God didn't approach Christmas the way we do. Jesus didn't just show up out of nowhere. God, listen, God wasn't, God wasn't thinking to himself, you know, I want to do something for my creation. What can I get them? I know. I think I'll send them my son. That's not how that worked. It was the why. See, God, in the realization of the fact that we were doomed and without hope apart from him, hopelessly drowning under the weight of our sin. That was the why, which led him to, well, what is it that I can do about it? What is it that I can do to resolve it? What is the mechanism that will solve the why? Jesus is the what that solves the why. Don't you see that? Let's give gifts that way. See, I'm all for giving gifts. Just be more thoughtful about it. And specific. And it doesn't have to be about everything, but I'm just simply saying that 
By bringing Christ into the forefront of our mind, we can really redeem so many wonderful things about Christmas. Number three. And this is what the kids were talking about in the program this morning. Give what has meaning. Give what has meaning. See, we want to give with the right priority. We want to give what we can afford. And we want to give what has meaning. And this is just what I've been talking about. Now notice, back to verse 11. So they come into the house. They saw the young child with Mary and his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Priority. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him from their resources. And then they give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And this is why we always assume that there was three wise men. Because in a Western culture, if three people show up, there'd be three gifts. That's clearly not this culture. So these three gifts. Now, where do these gifts come from? Everything about the Christmas story is a fulfillment of prophecy. All of it's foretold. Every single detail about Jesus and His coming and His birth and where it is and when it is and how it happens and all of it is, is prophetic. And so 500 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 60, here's what he says. Lift up your eyes all around and you'll see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephraim. And those from Sheba shall come. And they shall bring gold and frankincense. And shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. So you see what happens is the wise men show up. On camels. Fulfilling this prophecy. The star that they followed from the east. Fulfilling this prophecy. From 500 years earlier. Which I don't have to spend much time explaining to you that there's absolutely no way that this could have been fabricated because how could that be possible? How could you possibly make this happen 500 years after it's been prophesied exactly the way it was prophesied to happen? In the town, at the time, all of the details exactly as God predicted. So here in Isaiah 60, we see that they're going to bring gold. Well, this should be obvious because gold is the gift that you bring to a king. All kings, especially when you look in the Old Testament, over and over you see whenever somebody comes before a king, there's, they bring gold. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. And she brings 120 talents of gold. Now think about this. That's 9,000 pounds of gold. The queen of Sheba brought 9,000 pounds of gold and presented it to Solomon. 
That's 118 billion with a B dollars worth of gold today. A talent of gold is 75 pounds. The Bible tells us that King David had one crown that was made out of a talent of gold. Now, I don't know if he wore that thing or what, but a 75-pound gold crown. And over and over we see the king of Haran came and brought 450 talents of gold. And I mean, Solomon, he had so much gold that the Bible said that silver was as nothing to Solomon. So the gold comes, and that should be obvious, because gold equals he is king. Gold symbolizes he's the king. You bring gold to Jesus because Jesus is the king. That's what the gold is there for. Isaiah 60 also references frankincense, which is basically incense. And throughout all the Old Testament, every time you see incense, it represents deity, always. You have the table of incense in the uh, temple that would burn as a, as a fragrance up to God. The Bible always talks about incense being offered to God. It was a, a, a fragrant smell that would lift up to Him. It was always about deity. Remember in Exodus 30, the Bible talks about how incense is for God and not even for people. And so in the temple and in the Holy of Holies, they would burn incense for God. It wasn't for people. It was for God. And so frankincense is one of the gifts that's brought to Jesus because He's God. Gold is because he's a king. Frankincense, because he is God. Just like Isaiah 60 predicts. But the thing is, Isaiah only mentions two gifts. And when the wise men show up, they have three. Myrrh. Time and time again in Scripture, we see this word, myrrh. We don't use it much unless we're talking about the Christmas story or something. But it's this paste that was used. It was like a perfume to make things smell good. You know, I always, my, my wife is obsessed with things smelling good. I don't really understand that. I don't get it. But she is. And whenever she goes somewhere, you know, she always notices the smell of something. Which is a problem around, you know, me and the boys when we're doing something, you know. So if we're playing basketball uh, in the driveway and then, you know, she's ready to go somewhere. And so we jump in the car with her and she cracks the windows. It's the smell. See? smell but I always say that well you only need to make something smell good if it smells bad if it doesn't smell bad it doesn't need perfume so myrrh obviously is I mean am I the only one that thinks about this surely you've thought about this it's for stinky things that's what it's for that's what 
right? See, I know all you ladies, you wear perfume not because you stink, but because you, but I don't understand that. If you don't smell bad, why would you put something else on? The whole point is you put something good on if you smell bad. If you don't smell bad, well, then you don't need anything. Right? Makes sense to me. Yes, I'm aware you're not going to change. I know that. So this myrrh is for things that are odorous. And when we see myrrh in the Scripture, like for example in John chapter 19, it's to make something really bad not smell so bad. It's what they use to anoint bodies. It was the way that they would embalm bodies. They would wrap them. They would smear them with myrrh and then they would wrap cloths around the body so that it wouldn't stink so bad as it was decomposing. That's what myrrh is for. Now, why would you give myrrh to a baby? I love the smell of babies. I mean, most of the time. (laughs) You don't put perfume on a baby. You just clean them. A clean baby. Nothing smells better than a clean baby. That's what you need to do. Do they make any clean baby spray? Why don't you just get that? That would be great. Everybody just smell like a clean baby. It would be wonderful. Sit the kids. They just get my mind going. It's their fault. So why do they give myrrh to Jesus? Well, myrrh equals he will die. That's what myrrh is for. That's why that gift is brought. You see, because these wise men had traveled 900 miles. They had overcome tremendous hardship to get there. And according to the perfect will and plan and purpose of God that had been set before the foundation of the world, as we learned last week, they came to honor Him as King, to acknowledge that He's God, and to give reference to the fact that He will die. You see, because the wages of sin is death. And somebody has to die to pay that debt. Now, if if another person says, you know what, hey, I'll, I'll die for your sin. I'll die in your place. Well, that's all well and good, except here's the problem. The problem with that is that my sin... And your sin is not committed against another person. So another person can't die for the payment of that sin because that sin's not committed against people. First, it's committed against God. You see, the reason that it's sin is because it violates the law of God. And so if sin is against God, then we can't die for each other's sin. We need someone who's God to die for sin. So you see, the only way sin can be paid for is you have to have someone who's God and someone who's man. 
But it's got to be God and man, but different than us. It's got to be God and got to be man, but he's got to do something we couldn't do. He's got to live a perfect life. You see, that's why Jesus had to come as a man, and that's why Jesus lived a perfect life and never violated one of God's principles so that he would be an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. And so he gets myrrh because he's going to die. He's going to die as the what that answers the why to why he came in the first place. The why is because God loved us so much that he's going to make a way for us. And the only way that he can make a way is that someone had to die, but someone who's acceptable, someone who's qualified. None of us could do that. Only Jesus could. Only Jesus could stand in our place. You see, he's the only one that could satisfy the wrath of God. Which is why when we get to Christmas, there are so many things that should overwhelm us. All of the Christmas paradoxes ought to overwhelm us because within something seemingly that doesn't make sense, there's this beautiful, amazing reality. Wow, God really, really, He really does love us that much that He would do the unthinkably difficult and hard only thing that could be done on our behalf. It would have been so easy for him to just say, well, forget it. I mean, I tried, but I'm not doing that. That's too much. It's too far. But he didn't do that. He sent his son exactly the way he said that he would. And he always knew that he would do that. You see, so as he created, he created creation as the stage for which he would play this grand drama out upon. But as he created us, as he created people, he created us in the foreknowledge of everything that we were going to do against him. And the reality of what he had already done on our behalf to resolve our problem. Even so much so that he would bring these outsiders. He would lead them 900 miles to come to Jesus. No, no religious person would ever dream that these three were in, that these three would be acceptable, that these type of people would be the kind of people that Jesus would come to save. But in the Christmas story, we have God giving the greatest gift that's ever been given and surrounding that gift, not with the most expensive, amazing, 
wonderful wrapping paper and beautiful ribbons and all. No. He surrounds that gift with shepherds, the lowest possible position in the Jewish culture, and astrologers. complete pagans and even in the gifts that they brought they're there to teach us about God they're there so that we know that he's our king that he is God and that he came to die to die for us because apart from that death there's no other hope the God-man, infant Jesus, who has to grow up in a family, just like me and you, in a place, just like me and you, had to experience life on this earth, just like me and you, had to figure out how to Get along with people just like me and you. He had to figure out how to love people just like me and you. He had to figure out what to do when people hurt him just like me and you. God man in our place who came to die. So Christmas is, it's the God of the universe came to us and became our king and died so that we could have peace with God forevermore.